Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Some listeners generously donated so I could be in the U.S. for the election, and what follows is a diary, with sound, of Election Day and the days that followed. It's a kind of personal rough draft of history. Election Day dawned in Pennsylvania, but that doesn't mean the campaigning stopped. Joe Biden went to his birthplace, Granton, with a few of his grandchildren in the morning, making one last push to get his voters to the polls. Biden told reporters, these are the only two of my grandchildren who have never been to Scranton, so we're going home. I had been at Scranton Airport the previous day for one of the last of Donald Trump's rallies. It had a valedictory feel, at least to me, but I confess I was no longer in an objective frame of mind. I wanted the election over, the votes counted, and the man defeated, and was perhaps seeing signs of his imminent dispatch where there weren't any. I woke up in Bethlehem, 75 miles south of Scranton. Bethlehem has been on the skid since the great steel company that bears the town's name shut down at the beginning of this millennium. It is like Johnstown in the western part of the state, a place being left to rot, although it does have two sources of employment, Lehigh University, still one of America's top engineering schools, and it also has medicine, St. Luke's University Hospital. But take away the education industrial and medical industrial complexes from most cities in the Northeast, and there would be virtually no economy left. That's been the trend line since deindustrialization began in earnest back in the early 1980s. I drove over the Lehigh River to Allentown, another dead zone. It was a bright, breezy, cloudless autumn day. The streets were completely empty, except for small clusters of voters at polling places and at a Democratic office downtown. But even factoring in the pandemic, it was a ghost city, a film set with all the streets cleared for a take, but no one was shooting. I'm not a big Billy Joel fan, but the words to Allentown went through my brain as I drove around the city. One verse starts, Well, we're waiting here in Allentown For the Pennsylvania we never found For the promises our teachers gave If we worked hard, if we behaved And it goes on and it's getting very hard to stay. Clearly, most people didn't. The odds are, if you were 30 when that song came out, as I was, you are now a grandparent, as I am not. How your life played out over the last 40 years will have affected which way you voted. But Allentown is not completely empty. Rents are cheap. Kids are moving back into the center, as I found out when I went to a little press conference called by Lehigh Stands Up, a group of young progressive activists and part of a larger network around the state. Their leader is Ashley Strange. It seems like something that we shouldn't have to fight for. It seems like something that should just happen. Voters are able to cast their ballots and assume that the way that the country works is that every vote gets counted. But we have seen a lot of evidence that that is not going to, that, not that that is not going to happen, but that the president has been trying very, very hard 
to make sure that every vote does not count because he knows that when we count every vote, he will lose. So we take care of each other because when we see that there's something wrong, we know that it, it is on us to make sure that it gets fixed. It's part of the strangeness of America these days that the group holds deconfliction training sessions. So I think most people that show up with guns aren't intending to use them. Um, they're really just a, a method of intimidation. So I try to reiterate that with my volunteers. Um, they're likely not there to shoot and kill anybody. Um, of course, that's obviously a possibility. But um, yeah, we just try to encourage folks to stay calm. Um, you know, we encourage white folks to, you know, stand in front of black bodies, stuff like that. The threat of violence wasn't so great, nor was it possible to predict where it might occur. So I headed back to Reading for election night. It was a very odd evening. There were no get-togethers I could drop in on. People are very COVID vigilant. An old college friend, Jane Palmer, is active in Reading and in the Pennsylvania Stands Up organization. She invited me to an online get-together, but it's tough enough to be in a room full of strangers. Looking at a screen full of them just didn't work for me. I had an early dinner at the Peanut Bar, a local institution in operation for 96 years. It was open when John Updike was growing up in Reading. Updike was one of the most successful and prolific authors of post-war America. He wrote too many books, if you ask me. But he has simply vanished in the Me Too era. The undoubted sexism in many of his novels, well, he was writing of the world around him, reads like misogyny in today's hypersensitive to such nuances world. Also, he is white, male, and thoroughly unwoke, and in today's literature industry, from books being commissioned to books being discussed, that makes him not only unfashionable, but forgotten in a heartbeat. I was never a big Updike fan, but I do remember the books about Harry Rabbit Angstrom as having something to say about America beyond the sex. Rabbit's life story, which is set in a fictionalized version of Reading, is in many ways the story of the class of men and women who would become Trump voters. In fact, Rabbit Angstrom ends up retired in Florida, resolving his life's conflicts on the golf course. I went back to my hotel to doze a bit and wait for the results. Couldn't really sleep. Shortly after the polls closed on the East Coast, I called an older friend, one of my life's many adopted big brothers. He's just two months younger than Joe Biden. In the 1960s, while Biden was embarking on a life path closer to Rabbit Angstrom's, without the infidelity, my friend was one of the leading anti-war activists in the country. Like Biden, he has never retired. He continues to be a leading educator and author. We were feeling quite giddy. He discussed how well the Biden campaign had done. As the pandemic raged, Trump was digging himself a hole, and Biden resisted all the calls for him to come out and, and argue with Trump. He followed one of the oldest rules in the political game. When your opponent is digging his own grave, say nothing and let him keep digging. Nothing had happened during the course of the Biden campaign to derail it. We were confident that there would be no Electoral College surprise this time. Biden's ahead in Ohio, my friend laughed. 
I added that I had been repressing my id for four years on social media and was looking forward to really cutting loose, not only against Trump, but the whole junta of the obese, Trump, Bill Barr, Mike Pompeo, Steve Bannon. By the time my friend and I said goodbye, Biden's early lead in Ohio had vanished. I checked my Twitter feed looking for some state counting reports, but instead found myself observing the great Twitter meltdown complete and total freakout by the anti-Trump forces. And I don't mean ordinary folks like you or me. In October, Pew Research Center released a study of who uses Twitter. It found just 10% of users produced 92% of all tweets from U.S. adults over the last year, and that 69% of these highly prolific users identify as Democrats or Democratic-leaning independents. Basically, Twitter has become the main platform for anti-Trump thought leaders to express themselves. I watched in amazement as tweet after tweet went by, many of them written by people who work in the upper echelons of Washington opinion forming, people with hundreds of thousands of followers, from senior commentators at newspapers to public intellectuals at think tanks like Brookings and AEI, as well as elite universities. They had spent months tweeting that with so many Democrats voting early to avoid crowds during the pandemic and so many Republicans voting on Election Day, the first results would overwhelmingly favor Trump. This lead would dwindle as early votes and mail-in were counted. It was likely that on election night, Trump would claim he was winning. And this is precisely what was going on. But it didn't stop them freaking out. It was most unseemly. Myself, when I make a dire prediction in social media, and it comes true, I don't panic. I relentlessly remind people I got it right. This was not happening on the anti-Trump platform of choice. It was panic in the tweets, or PTSD, post-Trump stress disorder. The night was unfolding similarly to 2016. The goddamn polls were wrong again. And I should say, I got sucked into it as well. For two years, ever since I covered the midterms for the BBC, whenever I was asked about the election, I had the same answer. If the vote is free and fair, and all the votes are counted, then the Democrats will win, because the election will be a straight up or down on Donald Trump, and the majority of Americans don't like him. His approval rating rarely gets above 42-43%. Policy will mean nothing. I felt even more certain of that prediction once Biden was the nominee and Trump messed up the COVID response. But clearly, the result was not going to be a landslide, a total repudiation. And that was a real disappointment. And it meant my gloating id would not get to display itself. Once it became clear there would be no winner on the night, I tried to get some sleep but couldn't really get all the way down and so found myself checking Twitter every hour or so, desperately trying to fast-forward reality. Reality. It does exist. It is calibrated in units of time, and you can't make it move any faster no matter how hard you try. Not quite awake in the morning, I drove to the Philadelphia suburbs, to my sister's house, I had chosen Pennsylvania as my base because the polls suggested it would be the tipping point state, and on that at least, the polls were right. Actually, the polls were more correct than they were being given credit for in the morning after the night before. 
One explanation for the anti-Trump Twitter meltdown is the outsized place polls have in the degraded American news and information landscape. Polls offer an overview, a framework for understanding the country. No more than that. They allow the commentariat in Washington and New York and elsewhere to make generalizations and sound authoritative. Polls have replaced another source of news, local newspapers. 2,000 closed in the last decade alone. No one ever taught me this. I didn't go to journalism school, and I don't think they teach it there anyway. When you get to a smallish town or city and you need to figure out what's going on in a hurry, who to talk to, the first place you visit is the local paper. Editors, reporters will almost always make time to tell you about their communities, and they know them better than anyone else. Two personal examples. In June 2016, just after presidential primary season ended and we knew that it would be Trump versus Clinton, I spent a fortnight driving around Ohio gathering sound for a BBC World Service documentary. I stopped in at the Toledo Blade and had an hour-long interview session with the managing editor and editorial page editor. They confidently predicted a Trump victory in Ohio. And since Ohio's vote had gone to the winner in every election for half a century, the inference was that Trump would win. They were right, of course. In 2018, I was down in Del Rio, Texas, on the Mexican border, and spoke with the editor of the Del Rio News Herald, himself a Mexican-American. He doubted the Democrat running for Congress locally, Gina Ortiz-Jones, would win. He was right. It was very close, but Jones lost. She ran again this year. I called him up. Would she win this time? Nope. Texas turning blue this year, like the polls say might happen? No chance. He was right. But his knowledge is not accounted for in polls. And if you're in Washington, and your main knowledge of Texas is the polls, then you really know nothing. Another way the polls help degrade the information system is through their categorizing of the population. Driving back to Philly, I had NPR, for whom I used to work, on the radio. The conversation was about the significant minority of the Latino vote going to Trump. What was that about? It seemed like the hosts of the program and many of the guests had only just found out that this community is not a monolith. Okay, Cubans in Miami. People in the news business have sort of known Miami Cubans are still voting as if the Cold War is still going on and they're going to overthrow the Castro regime. But what about the rest? Trump called Mexicans rapists, drug runners. Where's the outrage? The Hispanic community is 60 million strong. It has emigrated from dozens of countries over many generations. How can they be contained in a single polling category? It's a community that is evolving. It argues about its name, Latino or Latinx. I'm old, so I remember when Chicano clearly meant Mexican-American, a specific group within the Hispanic community. And I'm old school New York, so I use Boriqueño when speaking of Puerto Ricans. But the deeper point is, within this particular subset of the American population, no generalization holds up. And this brings me to the final point about polls and Twitter. They're made for each other. Short, headline, and soundbite friendly, but they're not reality and they feed into identity politics. 
Take Gina Ortiz-Jones, who I interviewed in 2018 and who I found very impressive. She is Filipina, an out lesbian, and a military veteran. Her opponent in 2016 was an African-American, who beat her by under a thousand votes. Her opponent this time was Tony Gonzalez, a Mexican-American, and he beat her by 12,000 votes. Identity on top of identity, to the point that it's meaningless. But having spent a bit of time along the border, my guess is that many people who are immigrants from Mexico and further south, who live in the area, in many cases for generations, have watched the drug cartels turn the cities where they used to have family into war zones, and are inclined to agree with Trump that there are bad people coming up from the south. Or maybe they just don't want what they built in America to be tarnished by the drug lord's reputations. And probably some people living near the border have been threatened by the cartels. Anti-Trump folks like to mock Trump followers for being stuck inside the Fox News silo without for a second thinking that Twitter is just a self-enclosed silo and the facts of polls and other forms of data that try to reduce humanity to some kind of mathematical essence are as far from reality as the fascist wet dreams one watches on Fox. Two days after the votes were cast, all eyes in America were on the vote count in Philadelphia. The votes cast on election day were tallied first, and as expected, Trump had a substantial lead. The early votes and mail-in ballots, millions of them, were not allowed to be counted in advance of election day. The reason? The state legislature sets the election rules, and in Pennsylvania, the legislature is controlled by the Republicans. They were warned delaying the count would create chaos and uncertainty, but that may have been what they wanted to happen. In any case, crowds gathered at the intersection of 12th and Arch Street outside the Pennsylvania Convention Center, where the Philadelphia County ballots were being counted. On the east side of Arch Street were the Count Every Vote Biden supporters. On the west, Stop the Count Trump Pence supporters. Between them were a small line of bicycle cops and dozens of reporters and camera crews. By the time I arrived, mid-morning, there were probably 150 on the Biden side of the street and a little under 100 on the Trump side. As you can hear, they made a lot of noise and acted up for the cameras. No cheating! We, only, we don't count every vote. We only count the real vote. Are you trying to silence me? Are you trying to silence me? Are you trying to block me out? I'm not allowed to speak. I'm not allowed to speak. This is my country. I'm from this country. What about you? Where are you from? Go, go, go. He better hope he don't get attacked over here. You need to go over there. Yeah. 
Corey Lewandowski, a pint-sized Trump aide, used a bullhorn to make a speech demanding the right to go in and observe. Permission to do so had already been granted, but he was hoping that the pick would make the news and the story would be told in a way that made it seem as if his demand had been denied. Conveniently, there was a Panera's right at the intersection. Panera's is a chain bakery coffee place that makes the best espresso I've been able to find in the U.S., and its free Wi-Fi is always excellent and strong. The place was colonized by the press. It was like old times for me. It's been ages since I was on a story like this, and it was fun to be among people desperately pushing images and cranking words into the ether to meet deadlines, muttering curses against editors and their ludicrous demands. The demos were good-natured, but lurking at the edges were men with physiques built out of steroids and weight training. They were wearing casual clothes, but looked like they might have bespoke black shirts hanging in the closet at home. They were eyeing the Biden supporters, communicating with people inside the Trump-supporting barricades. They seemed on the alert. For what? Trouble? If so, they went home disappointed. Things were just too good-natured. I decided to stop hanging around waiting for trouble that would never come. In addition to Panera's, the demos were right by the Reading Terminal Market, a landmark. The train no longer runs from Reading to Philadelphia, and the farmer's produce that used to be sold in the market is long gone, as the farms where the produce grew have been turned into suburban developments and golf courses. The Reading Market is now a food court, and I had time to stop in for a fried oyster po'boy sandwich at a Cajun cooking counter. It was very good. I went back to my sister's house in a development with a golf course built on what was a farm, and, like the rest of the citizenry, waited impatiently for the count to finish. We live in an era which combines instant communication with a need for instant gratification. The tension was unbearable. Flipping between news channels with no new information, filling the time with ill-informed speculation, President Trump walked into the White House briefing room on Thursday evening and told the country the Democrats were trying to steal the election. Among many lies he offered instead of facts as proof that the election was being taken from him was that his observers were not being allowed into the rooms where the ballots were being counted. Having watched Corey Lewandowski and his team escorted inside to where the count of Philadelphia's vote was taking place, I knew better. In the days that followed, it became clear that tens of millions of people believed Trump more than reality. There was another reality impinging on me, COVID. While I was sitting in Panera's, taking a break from the noise, I had an email from British Airways informing me my return flight to London had been cancelled. I booked another one. It, too, was cancelled. Finally, the company assigned me one. I didn't want to leave until the result in Pennsylvania was called. A few minutes before I was scheduled to leave my sister's house on Saturday, the news came through. Smiles and relief, except for my Trump-supporting nephew. I wonder if he'll ever accept the fact that his guy lost. As I record this, the count continues, and Trump, aided and abetted by congressional Republicans, is doing everything in his power to delegitimize the Biden victory. This cannot end well for America. 
when the leaders of the losing side in an election refuse to accept the result and encourage their voters not to respect it, it can only end badly, even when the winner is as magnanimous and even-tempered as Joe Biden. And that's all for this FRDH podcast, although I'm certain that's not all for the American election. Visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com. Among the many podcasts, you can assemble a history of the Trump years and how the Republicans became the Trump party, hours of sound, and some very useful history. And while you're there, please make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.